Happy Father's Day, everyone. No response from the crowd. Excellent. Love it. Hopefully everyone's doing well. Uh, If you haven't noticed, we're doing a little tag team talk this morning. Uh, We occasionally do that here. And it's an opportunity for us to uh, both reflect on a passage, uh, to wrestle with it together, to spend time during the week really uh, thinking about and praying together about this particular passage. And we're going to go to one that is uh, very familiar to us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. And um, Matthew 20 has several really familiar sections. Um, but a little bit of this might come as a surprise to you. We're going to look at the passage from a slightly different angle. Uh, not to throw Daniel, who is leading worship up here, under the bus, but the other day I did a wedding. And um, just got done with the wedding ceremony, we were hanging out, I went to the back and like the reception had started and I was uh, sitting next to Daniel who was running sound and he said, hey, what are, you, what are you speaking on in the next couple weeks? And I said, hey, this passage on Matthew 20, I said, I'm really excited about it. We're going to look at this familiar passage, but we're going to look at it from like a different angle. And Daniel, in uh, the best, this is my best Daniel impression, he's like, oh, shocking. Yeah, I would, have never, I would have never guessed, Russ, that you would look at a passage from a different angle, from a different perspective, so really looking forward to that. Love the cynicism. Thanks, Daniel. So, yes, we are going to look at a very familiar passage, but uh, we're going to have a different take on it. And as... Oh. Yeah, hello. How's that? You're live. Um, this just fell out of my pocket. Um, As we get started, go ahead and just join me in prayer. Um, God, thank you for today. We're going to start the prayer here. Um, God, thank you for today. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are here. God, I ask that you remove any words from us and I that are not of you. Lord, I ask that you speak through us and that you move in our community, Lord, that you move in our lives, in our hearts, and that you call us to a higher calling today. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Like Russ said, go ahead and open to Matthew 20, 20 through 28, and we're just going to read this together. It starts and it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a really familiar and yet fascinating story. story of the disciples asking to be first and second in the kingdom of God. They're pining for places of honor. They're looking for esteem and privilege. And uh, this, this uh, story has always, in my opinion, been viewed through the lens of humility. 
of understanding our rightful place, of uh, understanding that the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, of uh, really grasping the truth that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And uh, it truly makes sense because of Jesus' response. If you notice, he starts to try to reorient the thinking of the disciples. He says to them, in the midst of their infighting and jockeying for position, he says very simply, it is about servant leadership. It's about redefining greatness. It's about calling them to something higher and more beautiful, this posture of humility. And this wouldn't have been, I think, in any way surprising to the disciples. They would have seen this modeled time and time again. They would have seen Jesus washing their feet. They would have seen him uh, set aside acclaim and recognition. They would have seen him do miracles in which people are flocking to him and him simply kind of escape the crowd. They would have seen him serve and love And at first glance, this passage is in many ways about humility, but the lens that we want to look through this morning, let's make it a little bit different, is that we want to look through at it at the lens of parenting. Super original, right? Real creative. Father's Day, we're going to talk about Jesus and parenting. Yes. So, but as we start, understand this, two things. One, if you are a parent, this applies to you. Two, if you are a, if you're not a parent, this also applies to you. This will apply to you in your relationships, in your families, in your small groups, um, everything. The the aspects are far-ranging. The other thing we want to say up here is that we sit up here in no way thinking that we have it all together as parents. Yes, we are parents. We, not together, we don't parent together. He's got four kids. I have three kids. Um, And we do not think we are the premier model of parenting. We sit up here as eager learners alongside with you. So let's jump back into it. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open. We are going to start specifically at verse 21. Here it goes. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to Jesus, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And when Russ and I originally read this, we thought to ourselves and we realized we have been this mom. That people in our community have been this mom. Like this mom, our desire for our kids may sometimes run counter to the kingdom. Jesus, earlier, if you, if you look back, as your Bibles are still open, if you look back, Jesus has just finished this beautiful picture of the kingdom. Um, he's talking about the vineyard and the workers and how it didn't matter if you worked one hour or all day, you got the same wages. And it's this beautiful picture of grace and equality amongst the kingdom, right? It was a bold and beautiful reorientation towards grace, giving a kingdom vision. And right after this, this mom walks up to him and is like, Jesus, my kids, one and two, number one and number two, not equal. I want them right next to you, up at the top. And that seems bold, right? But I think if we pause and we sit here and we think for a second, we will realize that our aspirations for ourselves and for our kids often are fueled by the world's agenda, just like this mom. It's easy for us to kind of aspire for our children to some of the same things that I think our culture desires that often run counter to what God's desire for the kingdom values looks like, right? So you catch this mom who at this point is asking for an amazing thing. She's asking that at the end of time that her boys would sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus. I mean, that's just crazy audacity. 
to ask that. And to do so on the heels of hearing about equality in the kingdom. That we're all given amazing grace. That we're all extended a gift. Regardless of whether we've been a a part of the family of God for years or just a few moments. That we all enter into this beautiful redemption. And then she says, well, how about what first and second? Just, Just the right and the left hand. Of Jesus. I mean, I'm not asking too much, right? And I sometimes wonder in her failure to understand the bigger picture, how many times we also have our aspirations tilted by culture. We begin to take on the very desires that the world around us has rather than what Christ is calling us to. I remember uh, I was a youth pastor for quite a few years, and I remember uh, having these kind of conversations with parents where they would come and they'd begin to kind of lament to me the stage that their junior higher or their high schooler was in, right? Like, man, we're really having some struggles at home, and we would start to talk it out. And, And oftentimes, I remember one of the things being said is, like, the tension right now in our home is that my kid is not focused on grades, that there's like, the, he should be getting A's, and currently he's getting like mostly A's, but a B here, maybe a C here. And man, it, we're just like buttoned heads because he's got to be doing so much better than he's currently doing. And my retort was usually like, man, a B sounds pretty good. It's not even a subject he likes. Like, I think that's pretty awesome. And the parent would respond with, you just don't get it, Russ. Like, someday you will. Someday you'll have kids, and someday you'll get it, and you'll understand why this is a big deal. And I, so I would start to ask him questions. Like, help me to understand. Um, why, why good grades? Why straight A's? Well, they have to do good in school. Why? Well, because we want them to get into a good college. Okay. Well, you want them in a good college. Well, it's obvious, because we want them to get out with a good degree and get a good job. All right. Well, why do you want them to get a good job? Well... Because they need to make good money. Okay, well, why do they need to make good money? Because then they can buy a nice house and a nice car and live in a nice neighborhood and send their kids to really nice schools and then their kids will get really good grades and we'll fight with them in high school about that. And then, <laughs> then they'll, and it just keeps going and going and going. And is that really the gig? Is that what we're doing? Is that what we're aspiring to? just kids that get good grades and just kind of go through the motions, or is there something more than that? It's amazing how quickly we just allow a slight turn of aspirations or desires to reorient the way we think. But hold on, because if you're anything like me, the majority of my anxiety, which I have some, comes from um, trying to be the best mom that I can be and providing the best opportunities for my kids that I can, right? How many of you are parents out here? Go ahead. There you go. How many of you guys want what's best for your kids? Right. That is right. We should all want what's best for our kids. However, perhaps we sometimes have the wrong definition of best. Like this mom, she wanted what may have been culturally best for her kids, not what was kingdom best. She wanted her kids in position one and two. She was more concerned about their place and position rather than their actual relationship with Jesus or what would best serve the kingdom. The wrong bests. We do the same thing. Sometimes we're just a little more subtle. Or we think we're more subtle, right? But sometimes we chase after the weird things. 
For example, sometimes we replace us as parents with stuff. You ever find that happening? Where if I can just give my kid the right experience, then I don't have to necessarily worry about the moment I'm in with them at this point. Or if I can just get them that thing they really, really wanted, that that'll, that'll work out, they'll be happy, they'll be excited. And we replace us with stuff. I mean, we think to ourselves, what could be better for our kids than if they have the latest toy, the most current set of clothes, the most envious experience, if we can have them consume things that will bring happiness. I mean, look, it works for us, right? No, it doesn't. And yet we think somehow that we can pass that off on our kids, or perhaps it's just easier, right? That if I, if I get them something to occupy them, then I actually get a little bit of free time myself. There's all these tensions. The other day I was at a, a little birthday party. And uh, you know birthday parties for little kids, right? It's like the, the toys are li- or the, like the gifts are lined up with the packaging, you know? And sometimes they get like the card first, you know? You get the card. Open the card. No, no, how about the, the gift, right? It's got to be the gift. So you open the gift and papers fly in, boxes are flying. You pull out the thing that is like they've been talking about for months. Like, oh man, I so badly want that. And they're like, that's great. Next gift, right? And you're right into the next gift. It's so simple. That happens over and over. I remember uh, years with our kids, it would be Christmas time, you know, and grandma and grandpa from this side of the family are going to get them a bunch of things, and grandma and grandpa from the other side of the family are giving them a bunch of things, and so here's a little tip if you're new to the game. We realized that up until about six, they have no clue whether you got them anything, right? So just like (laughs) get them a little dollar store toy or something, and then they open it, and it's like one of many presents, right? So you can save yourself some money, and they'll never remember it anyway, and so the crazy thing is my parents got these gifts and my wife's parents got all these gifts and we got our daughter a pack of gum and a little like, little, like a hat or something from the dollar store. All day long, the only thing she played with, the hat and ate the gum. That was it. All the other gifts, just like in the corner, get them later. That was it. And it's so easy for us to go, man, I, I'll just get one more thing. And it ends up being the next thing you sell at a yard sale for 25 cents a couple years later, right? But maybe that's not your issue. Uh, Maybe instead we replace growth with comfort and safety. I think here's here's the tension with this idea, right? It's tough because first you have to affirm that the greatest goal for your child and for yourself is Christ-likeness. We just sang that song, we want to be like you. If that's the goal, to speak like, to act like, to be like Jesus, if that's part of the goal, right? You have to affirm that first is the highest goal for your child. But then after that, the subtle replacement is comfort and safety. I think what we want and what we aspire to is growth, but we replace it so often with comfort and safety. We try to protect our kids from trials when in fact trials are sometimes the greatest means of growth. In the book of James, it says that the one who is mature and complete, not lacking anything, right? That's the goal. How, the text says, 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And yet, I think sometimes we try to shelter our kids from the tension. But I want my kids to fail so they can learn to get back up again. I want my kids to experience bad teachers and incompetent bosses. I want my friends to be hurt by their friends and still learn to be a friend instead. I want all those things for my kids. I don't want them just to have safety and not just to have comfort. I want them to have growth. Shannon and I constantly say that we don't just want good kids. We want kids that will change the world. We want kids that will sacrifice for the kingdom. We want kids that will put others first. We want kids that love Jesus with all their heart. We want kids that will do whatever it takes to be a part of what God is inviting them into. We don't want kids that just follow the rules. We want kids that learn to break the right ones. We want to see... As parents, the goal not to be my kids' safety, not to be my kids' comfort, but to be my kids' growth. And I wrestle with this because all of those things that Russ just listed, I want for my kids. And when I'm hypothetically talking about them, I really want them. But when it comes down to it, I realize it's hard. Even just recently, my, one of my daughters tried out for a soccer team, and it's our first experience with club soccer. And we went into it like, okay, this is going to be great. Whatever happens, happens. It'll be fine, whether she makes it or not. And about 10 minutes into the tryouts, I realized, no, I want her to make this team. Like, this is, <laughs> is going to be good. Um, and it, my motivation was not because I wanted her to be a light for Jesus and because I was going to witness to all these parents. It was, I want her to make this team because this is a good coach. These are good players. She's going to learn a ton. She'll gain confidence. And if she doesn't make it, all of her friends are on this team and she's going to be sad. This would be awful. She made the team, so it kind of ruins the story a little bit. But <laughs> they, I, had she not, I would have had two options. One, I could call the coach, try and manipulate the situation, maybe take out one of the kids and try and open up a spot on the team. Um, <laughs> or immediately try and find another team that she could be on quickly and then not even break the news to her, just be like, no, we found this other team, it's going to be great. Um, Or the other option is to break the news to her, to sit with her, to point her to Jesus, to pray with her and say, God, what other opportunity do you have? What other team is there? Is there something else you have planned for my daughter? Um, But I think too often we rob our kids of opportunities to experience God's love, God's provision, his comfort, his growth, by trying to fix everything for them. We create these bubbles around our kids, trying to protect them from all these things, whether that's protecting them from consequences of their actions or protecting them from hard situations and failures um, so that they don't have to experience questioning or pain or sadness. But what if we replaced that bubble with us? What if we replaced it with us sitting with them, pointing them towards Jesus? Because our kids, I'm convinced that our kids need not just to know that God is good simply because we've told them that, but because they have experienced him and his goodness. A few weeks ago, Russ talked about the man who Jesus healed, who he was 
possessed by demons, he healed him, and this man went back to his town and told all the town, the whole town, all about Jesus. And I thought about it, and I was thinking, I don't think that this man went and told everybody about Jesus because a bunch of people recited a bunch of facts about God to him. I think he told them about Jesus because he experienced Jesus, and Jesus changed his life, and he had to tell people about it. Like Russ said, we want kids who will change the world, that sacrifice for the kingdom, that love Jesus, that know Jesus, that want to live their lives following him, that they know that Jesus shows up because he has when hard times have come. They haven't been protected from all the hard times, but they've experienced them and grown. We want kids who follow him and don't follow things, don't follow the culture, don't follow the world, and don't follow comfort, but follow Jesus and serve the kingdom. That's the best. And whether you're a parent or a friend or a small group leader, like the mom in this passage, don't, caught up, don't get caught up in chasing after things that run counter to the kingdom. The second uh, idea from this passage that we want to highlight is a very simple kind of idea that uh, many of us understand, and it's this. You pass on to your kids or to other people the things that you value. If you look in the text, again, it says this that he said to her, Jesus is saying, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in the kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Now you noticed probably the shift in the passage, right? She said to him, and then they said to him. Early in the story, the mom's talking. Maybe she came to Jesus because she thought, man, if like Jesus is elder, I'm his elder. What if I you know, was to share that they should be number one and two? Maybe that would sway Jesus' opinion and he would vote for that to be the case. I don't know why she went specifically and spoke to him. But what you notice is that she's speaking and then soon you notice that it's actually they that are speaking. You find them arguing for the exact same thing, desiring the exact same thing. And mind you, in this story, these are men, okay? Culturally, these are men. And this is likely, I'm just going to make an assumption, not the first time mom has gone out of the way to figure out how to arrange a situation for her boys. You don't wait until your son's like about ready to go off to college and something goes wrong, and then you swoop in as a parent and try to fix it. You probably don't even wait till middle school. You probably start, like, on the playground, and in kindergarten, and first and second grade, and you begin to set up a pattern where I think this mom walks into the situation and is like, what can we do to fix this for my boys? What can I do to, like, rescue and save them? Mom's desire for greatness... The world's version of greatness became the son's very desire as well because we pass on to our kids or to our friends the very things we value, the people we spend time with, their traits, their characteristics, their loves, all of that gets rubbed off on one another. And like the brothers in this passage, kids are always listening. They're like these little sponges, and then they turn into little mirrors, and they show you all the things you've done wrong. I can't think of how many times my kids have been doing something and I'm frustrated. I'm like, where are you learning this? Then I realize it's probably from my husband, not me. <laughs> um, it's often 
a direct reflection of something that I've done just the day before. I'm, I'll be honest. Um, but I realized this actually at a really early age with my kids. My daughters are now 10, 8, and 6, but when they were little, like many of your kids, I'm sure they love to dress up. And I never fought the battle, I just embraced it. And I said, wear whatever you want. We came to church many times with helmets and work belts, and that helmet was amazing. It saved us a lot of times. So if your kids wear helmets, go with it. Um, but they also love to wear dresses, and they... I started to notice that every time my girls would be dressed up, people would ooh and ah and say, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at that dress. And one day, when my daughter was only two or three, she walked upstairs and she was wearing a dress and she twirled in this little cute little twirl. And she said, Mom, am I beautiful? And it hit me all of a sudden. It actually like gave me this knot in my stomach because I realized she was soaking in all the things that she's learned. And she already at age three was starting to associate beauty with this dress that she was wearing and feeling pretty because of this dress. And it's because we had complimented her and told her those things. And so I realized I have to start changing the way that I talk to my daughters about beauty, that I started complimenting them. I want them to know they're beautiful when they're sharing with their sisters and when they're generous and when they are living into who God made them to be and when they are kind to a stranger and when they are learning about Jesus and when they wake up in their morning, their hair's everywhere, that that is beauty. It's not this dress. And so I had to start changing the way I talked, changing the way that um, I would talk to friends around us because they listen to everything and they soak it in because... I believe that the things that we say and that we acknowledge and that we compliment and that we model and talk about, they matter. And it's often the small and subtle things that they pick up on. I want to just put out a reminder to small groups. Here's the reminder. Parents model for their kids, but then they bring all their kids to small group. And the kids hang out with group, they spend time together, and guess what? They model what you do. All of a sudden, my son or daughter comes home and they love the sports team that someone in small group loves. They want to get, cut their hair the way someone in small group has their hair. They want to act a certain way. They, they, you hear them say a phrase and you're like, I've heard that phrase before. Oh, yes. I know who that came from. And, and suddenly you start to see that they're actually mirroring you as much as they mirror mom and dad, and sometimes maybe more. And so we have these subtle ways of, just like we talked about, what are the things you're complimenting little boys or girls on? How do you speak of things that matter? What kind of conversations do you have, and what do those communicate to the kids that are listening? One of the things I think that subtly happens too, whether it's in small group or at home or when you have conversation with kids, is we say things like, hey, what do you want to be when you get older? What are you hoping to be someday? And oftentimes, if the kid doesn't know, we begin to kind of coach them into what they want to be, right? So we're like, oh, you could be a doctor. You could be a lawyer. You could, uh, you could you know, be a photographer. You could be a banker, a contractor. Like we start throwing out ideas. Maybe the kid has no idea what he wants to be or she wants to be, but maybe they do and they start to share, and so we talk about that. And uh, we really, in some ways, I think, create lists that kids aspire to, whether we know it or not. And so suddenly they hear that, oh, man, I I could do that. I could be that. Julie recently told me about a mom who had one of those kind of proud mom moments, you know, like those times where everything 
just is like perfect. And if you could pause and make a Polaroid picture of it or Instagram, like it's the perfect moment, right? So she's hanging out with her kids and one person comes up uh, to her particular boy about eight years old or so and says to him, hey, what do you want to be when you get older? And the kid, you could see like the wheels spinning. He's thinking about it for a moment. And he said, brave and kind. Yeah, I want to be brave and kind. Man, what if you walked up to someone at New Community instead of asking them if they want to be a doctor or a dentist or some other occupation, you said, tell me what kind of value you want to live out when you get older. You want to be brave and kind. You want to be generous. You want to be hospitable. You want to love the unlovely. Do you want to care for those who can't care for themselves? Do you want to be a discipler, a leader, a person who is a lifelong learner? I mean, the list can go on and on. What if that's the kind of language we use when we speak with kids in our community? What if we valued so much passing on the ethos what we know and what we love and what we follow about Jesus? What if we valued so much passing on Jesus that the kids just soaked it in? That each of us saw our role as part of the process of seeing parents disciple their kids, that we get to be a part of that. There's this story in the book of Judges. I I remember I was about a sophomore in college and I came across this section, the end of Joshua in the beginning of Judges, and I was reading through it, and it, it just struck me really, really deeply. There's this passage that says, um, and it says this in Judges 2. It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. So that whole generation, right? Who had all seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. So that whole generation passed. They all died. And it says this, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. If you know the book of Judges, it's just like a disaster, right? You have a good judge, and then you just have seasons of horrible leadership, people running from God, people living however. I mean, the end of the book is people did whatever they saw fit to do in their own eyes. That's the whole book. And it starts off, and this is what it says at the beginning, that there was a whole generation of people, us, that knew God, loved God, were passionate about Him, and everyone around us was as well. And then we all passed on. And a whole generation grew up, the text says, that neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A whole generation who failed at discipleship, who failed to pass on the most important things, that failed in their responsibility, their calling of faith to say, this generation to follow us needs to know and love and live for the Lord as much as we do. Because... I'm convinced discipleship is our calling. Discipleship is our calling. Whether you're a parent or not, you are called to be a disciple and then to disciple others. And if you are a parent, you are called to disciple your kids. And this may be a little bit hard to hear, but 
we at New Community love your kids. We love what's happening back there. Um, but we are not their primary discipler. You are. We have incredible leaders back there. We've got great teachers. We've got leaders who love your kids. Carly is fantastic. We have a great curriculum. She tweaks it every single week so that it will speak to the kids in our community directly. But we have them one hour a week. And if you show up every single Sunday of the year, which doesn't happen, that would be 52 hours of the entire year. You have them day in and day out. This is your calling. And I don't say this to add pressure or guilt or one more thing to do as a parent. I say this as a reminder, a reminder to all of us. So the question, how do you disciple others? How do you disciple your kids? It sounds like this huge complex question, right? It's, it's not. It's a lot more simple than that. And if you look up at the slide here, um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 tells us how to do it. So Deuteronomy 6 is a passage that we bring up every single time we do a baby dedication. We've got one coming up in a week. And uh, baby dedication is like one of the best times because we're not really saying anything about the baby. We're saying everything about the parenting. We're saying that this is your opportunity to disciple your child. You have a huge responsibility. And it's a calling that all of us are included on. If you're in a small group, you're part of raising a group of kids as well that are in your group. And the text says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. Discipleship starts with you and the Lord, with loving him with all of your heart and soul and strength, um, by following him, by being a disciple yourself, by choosing kingdom values over culture values, giving your life completely to him and striving to live a life in tune with the spirit, living into that abundant grace that he so freely gives. And then discipleship happens out of the overflow of your love for the Lord. In the day in and day out of life, not these big moments all the time, which there are big moments, but in the small, subtle, mundane things. When you sit and when you stand, when you walk alongside the road, when you're in the car on the way to school, when your kids are fighting with their siblings. It happens when, you're, when they're playing, when you're having intentional conversations about Jesus, uh, when you're pointing them out like, look what he's doing right now, just pointing them in that direction. It, help, it happens by giving grace when they fail and asking for grace and forgiveness when you fail. Discipleship happens by being a disciple yourself and then passing on kingdom values to your kids. It's not just a prayer before meals or showing up on Sunday. It's about talking to him and about him throughout the day. Because God is not a routine. He's not something to check off the list. He's alive and moving and inviting us to move with him. This morning was an attempt for us to just communicate that in this passage, there is this desire, I think, in all of us to understand servant leadership, to understand that our role really is to point people to Jesus. I want to encourage you that discipleship and parenting and everything we've talked about this morning is really about community. It's best done in community. So continue to lean into that. Continue to lean into grace and, uh, and understand it is our deep love for the Lord